0: Happy New Year. Um, We are going to be uh, getting our uh, boots back into Matthew this morning and um, for those of you I know who enjoy working through these texts in the weeks before we preach, um, maybe in your house churches or just individually. We have the new sheet, this little blue fellow here, which I think is at the table just at the back. Um, if you want to collect one of those on your way out, you'll see where we're headed uh, for the next months, really through till Easter, the way that the series works out. We pretty much drop on the uh, Resurrection of Jesus on uh, Easter Sunday, which is sweet. So um, uh, grab hold of one of those. <clears throat> okay. So... Um, One of the themes that you'll be aware of as we've been working our way through this uh, series in Matthew's gospel over the last few weeks, uh, over the last few months, um, will be the way that Matthew shows us consistently, doesn't he, how Jesus meets and exceeds the expectations set by Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, I guess you've been picking that up as we've gone along. It's as if Matthew wrote his gospel, kind of sitting in his study uh, with Um, with uh, Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 pinned on his wall. That's the verse where Moses tells the Israelites, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me uh, from among your fellow Israelites and you must listen to him. From that point forward in Israel's history, uh, they have been looking forward to the coming of this new Moses. And Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is the man. And one of the ways that he does that is by dividing his whole book, uh, his gospel, into five subsections. Just as the teaching of Moses that we have in our Old Testaments is divided into five books, isn't it? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So it turns out Matthew divides the teaching of Jesus in his gospel into five books to show us how Jesus uh, fills Moses' shoes. Each one of those books in Matthew's Gospel begins with a a kind of narrative, kind of journalistic section. Uh, So, for example, the very first book of Matthew's Gospel, after the introduction that covers the uh, story of his birth, the first book uh, deals with um, the story of Jesus' baptism and then his temptation and then uh, narrates some details of his early ministry. But then after that, each book moves into a section of teaching. So in that first book, after we've uh, got through the narrative stuff, uh, we find ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where we're sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing him teach. And then each book ends with a characteristic little phrase that Matthew uses five times uh, that gets us ready for the next section of narrative. Um, So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we hear it for the first time. It goes like this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and then it goes on and says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Well, our section today brings us to the beginning of the fifth and final book of Matthew's gospel. How do we know? Well, if you look in your Bibles at chapter 19, verse 1, you'll see that characteristic little formula that Matthew has used five times to wrap up. Each one of the books as he's gone along. When Jesus had finished saying these things, in this case, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea. And it's important that we see this because this transition into the fifth and final book of Matthew's gospel marks the point where the whole thing starts to become a lot darker. By leaving Galilee and heading towards Judea, uh, Jesus is beginning his final journey towards the cross Jesus voluntarily embraces misunderstanding and rejection now. And that note of misunderstanding uh, is going to be the theme of our chapter. We've got chapter 19 in front of us this morning. So as the journey towards Jerusalem begins, Matthew shows us three incidents that capture how the people around Jesus misunderstood what it was that he was all about. The first incident shows us that life in the kingdom that Jesus came to bring is far more tightly constrained than the people around him imagined it would be. The second incident, uh, kind of paradoxically, shows us that life in Jesus' kingdom is also far less tightly constrained in other ways than uh, some people thought that it would be. And then the final incident shows us that it isn't possible to enter Jesus's kingdom in the way that the people around him assumed it would be. So do you see we've got three misunderstandings here. And that's going to give us our structure for the sermon for a change. It's going to be a nice, easy-to-follow three-pointer. So you should be able to keep your bearings easily here. The first section on divorce, though, especially, is really challenging. So just because it's got a nice simple flow to it doesn't mean that the material we're going to be looking at is easy. So we need to be ready for some discomfort here uh, as we push into this material. Um, But uh, let's just uh, kind of run with that and see what it is that God's got for us here. So I'm going to read some of these sections of the text as we go along. We won't read the whole thing in one go because it's too big, but we'll start by reading Matthew 19 verses 1 to 9. So stand with me and uh, we'll uh, get our teeth into this now. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read? He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. This is God's word. Take a seat. And let's pray together as we begin. Lord Jesus, this is a challenging text. It always has been. I guess it is particularly speaking into our culture today and you intended it to be so. So we pray that you would soften our hearts before it. Lord, make us willing and ready to hear your word to us, uh, to listen to your voice. Convince us if we need convincing, Lord God, that our wisdom coming out of our own hearts and heads is not going to navigate us safely through this life. Pray that you would give us a taste for words of life, for words of wisdom from the God who made us. And I pray that you would speak those words into our hearts this morning. Speak them into situations that we face in our own lives and marriages. Speak them, God, into um, the way that we are seeking to follow you. We pray that you might be uh, exalted uh, by uh, our response to what we hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, if you look in verse 3 of our text, um, just for reference, you'll uh, definitely find it helpful to have a Bible in your hands this morning. So if you don't have one, just raise a hand. Someone uh, will bring you one from the back. Verse 3 of our text in chapter 19 begins with these words. The Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. Now that should catch our attention as we start here. The Pharisees are not asking the question that's recorded here because they really want the answer, are they? They're asking it because they want to examine Jesus and see if he passes. Now this kind of thing happens three times in Matthew's Gospel and in each case we need to understand something of the background before we can really make sense of the dialogue that follows the clearest example is Matthew 22, no need to, need to turn there, uh, but it's a great uh, kind of uh, instance of uh, this testing that Jesus was subjected to. In that chapter, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come to Jesus with questions that are designed to kind of feel him out. The Sadducees start off by asking, what will happen at the resurrection of the dead in the case of a woman who's been married seven times? Whose wife will she be in heaven if there are seven guys who have a claim to her? Well, we could read that, couldn't we, and just interpret it as a challenging pastoral question that the Sadducees wanted to solve. Uh, perhaps there was someone in one of their congregations, a, a woman who was in exactly this situation, um, and they were coming to Jesus genuinely looking for help to know how to counsel her. Hmm. Maybe, but in reality, that's not what was going on. Matthew himself actually tells us the necessary piece of background information in Matthew 22. Uh, The Sadducees don't believe in life after death at all. So this wasn't a real question, was it? This was a a question designed to prove their point. They thought that by asking, setting this problem of the woman with seven husbands, it was a knockdown argument to prove that there was no resurrection at all. Their question was designed to prove that they were right and that their opponents, the Pharisees, were wrong. Now, the Sadducees brought this question to Jesus because they thought that they could use him to help them win their argument. Now, uh, if they had their time again, I'm thinking they probably would have realized this wasn't such a smart idea. They came hoping to get publicly vindicated over the Pharisees, but instead they were publicly humiliated, weren't they? Jesus told the Sadducees and everybody else in earshot that they didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. Their argument was facile. And he ruthlessly exposed it. But that at least gives us a bit of a flavour for what's going on in our text today. You see, in the first century, there were two different schools of thought among Pharisees about this issue of divorce. Two different schools of thought that reflected the thinking of the two greatest rabbis of the time, uh, whose names were Hillel and Shammai. You might have heard of them. Hillel and Shammai had both been active around the time of Jesus' birth, Uh, but they have very different opinions about the circumstances in which divorce was legitimate. All of this based on a controversy on the text of Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. I'm sure you're all familiar with that one. Well, we'll get there. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 tells us that uh, Moses permitted Israelite men to divorce their wives for a cause of indecency. Now, Shammai understood that, I guess, the way that most of us would understand it. Shammai said that uh, Moses permitted husbands to divorce their wives uh, if some kind of indecency was the cause, if they discovered that their wives had been unfaithful in some way. But Hillel understood it really differently. Hillel separated that verse out into two parts, and he argued that Israelite men should be allowed to divorce their wives either for indecency, or for any other cause. And that created a, cu- a culture of divorce on demand. You've got these Hillelite courts springing up in Israel who literally would sign you off for a any cause divorce. It's kind of shocking when you read uh, the way that these courts uh, handled things. The school of Hillel allowed men to divorce their wives uh, simply because they no longer thought they were pretty. Uh, the the uh, school of Hillel allowed men to divorce their wives because they burned their lunch. So do you see what's going on here now? When the Pharisees approached Jesus in chapter 19, verse 3, and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? They were asking the question, because they, uh, not because they wanted to know the answer, but because they were putting Jesus to the test. They wanted to see whether Jesus would side with Shammai, and defend the idea that unfaithfulness was the, uh, the basis for divorce that Moses had in mind back in Deuteronomy, or whether he would side with Hillel and say divorce for any cause was all right. Everyone okay with this so far? That's as deep into the background as we need to go, so you're doing well. Given all of this, the first part of Jesus' answer is kind of surprising, isn't it? You see, I'm sure Jesus knew what was going on here. He knew that he was really being asked to give an opinion on this text in Deuteronomy that was causing all the trouble. Uh, And he does get to that later in the text. But he starts by taking his audience all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Jesus wants to remind us what marriage is and who made it. Marriage, says Jesus, is a process by which two things become one thing, by which two people become one couple. And the craftsman who makes that joining together happen is God. Now, we're familiar with this idea, aren't we? We hear the words, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh at almost every wedding we go to. But perhaps that familiarity blinds us to the true wonder and the true strangeness of what's really going on. God tells us that in marriage, two distinct people acquire an essential oneness. They don't lose their individuality, and yet they become united in purpose and service, living together, moving together, planning together, and laying down their interests at one another's feet. That's the biblical picture of marriage, isn't it? But tell me, what would that have reminded you of if you had been a spectator standing in the Garden of Eden, uh, when God announced that for the very first time. Wouldn't it have reminded you of God himself? Isn't God the only other reference point for this kind of strange and wonderful relationship where multiple persons share an essential oneness? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit maintain their individuality, and yet they are united in purpose And service, living together, moving together, planning together, and laying down their interests at one another's feet. So you see, by giving human beings the gift of marriage, God blessed us uniquely with the opportunity to experience a kind of glimpse of one of the greatest and most wonderful mysteries of his own character. So do you see how Jesus is subtly turning the tables on the Pharisees here, even with this very first move? Both the followers of Hillel and the followers of Shammai were obsessed with finding ways out of marriage, weren't they? They were obsessed with, with uh, defining the line beyond which divorce was allowable. And it was all a question of exactly where that line lay. But Jesus has a totally different perspective. Jesus doesn't want us to think so much about the boundaries of marriage as he wants us to think about its rich centre. Jesus wants us to see marriage as a unique gift from God, a gift given only to humanity. He wants us to look at our marriages and dare to believe that even when they're scarred by disillusionment and hurt, that somewhere at the core of them, there's a source of closeness to the heart of God that even the angels long to experience. But Jesus has more to say to it than us than that, doesn't he? Jesus doesn't just want to remind us what marriage is, he also wants to remind us who has authority over it. Marriage, as a kind of communication of God's uh, essential character to human beings, is something that only God can create. So when a marriage forms, whether the man or woman involved acknowledges it or not, whether or not they even believe that God exists, their union is an act of God and they don't have the authority to dissolve it. What God has joined together, says Jesus, let no man separate. And that leads us back into this debate about Deuteronomy 24 that the Pharisees wanted Jesus to settle. See, in verse 7 of our chapter, the Pharisees quote the text that was causing all the problems. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? You see, if man was not allowed to separate what God had joined together, the Pharisees could see the possibility that Jesus was going to disagree with Hillel and Shammai and say that divorce was completely off the table. But once again, Jesus surprises them. Why, uh, they ask, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce And sent her away. But Jesus responds by saying Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Did you spot that shift from command to permit? Although the followers of Hillel and Shammai disagreed about whether it was legitimate to get divorced for any cause. They all agreed that if unfaithfulness was proven in a marriage. That the wronged partner was obliged to divorce the partner who had committed the wrong. That's what's going on in Matthew chapter one, actually, if you read that and been confused by it before. When Joseph hears that Mary is pregnant and he makes plans to divorce her, the text tells us he did it because he wanted to be faithful to the law because that's what the Pharisees expected. If there was any cause, um, uh, if there was evidence of unfaithfulness, it was the, the duty of the person who had been wronged to initiate a divorce. But Jesus doesn't see the necessity for divorces in cases like that, does he? Jesus tells us that Moses permitted divorce in those kinds of situations because the hearts of fallen men and women were hard. But he doesn't make it mandatory. And all that deserves a bit more thought. Hard-heartedness in the Bible is the state of choosing to go my way and choosing to reject God's way repeatedly, despite receiving opportunities to repent. The classic case of that is Pharaoh, isn't it, in the, uh, the Exodus story. God repeatedly gives him the chance to climb down and he repeatedly fe- refuses, uh, locking himself into this path of rebellion against God, hardening his heart. Now Jesus tells us that Moses allowed divorce among the Israelites because he saw a similar kind of hard-heartedness among them. In the marriages that Moses was called to pastor, he didn't just see situations where uh, sins were committed and then repented of and worked through. He saw situations in which marriages were being destroyed by unrepentant action despite offers of forgiveness. So according to Jesus, it seems the context in which Moses allowed divorce in Deuteronomy wasn't just cases of sexual immorality, but cases of hard-hearted sexual immorality, cases where every other option outside divorce have been offered and have been rejected. And there's a good reason for that. You see, God knows that divorce is something that we should do everything in our power to avoid. To us, divorce seems like a way to bring relational problems to an end, doesn't it? Maybe that's how our minds work when that thought enters in there. But God knows that divorce is a way to solidify and institutionalize relational problems. When a husband or wife steps outside God's good guidelines for marriage, checking out, giving up, withholding selflessness, abandoning sexual fidelity, to a greater or lesser extent, they tip themselves and their partner and all their dependents into a chaotic downward spiral. And how hard or soft the hearts of both partners are determines how deep and damaging that downward plunge becomes. With God's help, it doesn't have to be the end. Depending on exactly what happened, it's true. Things may never quite be the same again. But that doesn't mean that God can't use the process of confession and rebuilding trust to work incredible good. There are many marriages in this room, I guess, that testify to that. But as soon as things cross the line of divorce, there's an extent to which some part of that hurt gets set in concrete. The downward plunge initiated by, by rejecting God's good guidance for marriages halted at a certain point in its descent. But while that may be good in situations where continuing is only going to make that plunge deeper and more damaging, the cost is great. When a couple get divorced, it closes the possibility that real recovery will ever be achieved. You see, God made marriage for keeps. How could it be otherwise, given the eternal, amazing relationship within the Trinity that it models? And so, tearing a marriage apart leaves unfillable holes and enduring scars. A divorce is like a broken bone that sets crooked and can never quite bear. The full weight that was once placed on it again. It's like a burn in a favorite tablecloth that can never come out for best again. It's true, there are worse things that can happen in a marriage. Jesus is about to get to that. But we need to be very clear in our minds how far from the mark we are when we start thinking of divorce as a solution. It isn't a solution. It's more a way of locking in pain at a certain point of intensity beyond which no more can be caused, but without which we will never have the freedom to live again. So now finally we arrive at verse 9, and this is where Jesus gives his verdict. Is divorce permissible for any cause, as Hillel argued? Jesus' answer is not just no, but why in the world would you want to? If you divorce your wife for burning your lunch, or because she's no longer as pretty as she used to be? Don't you realize that you're exchanging a trivial pain, which can also be a momentary pain if you handle yourself well, for acute pain, for soul pain, that will last until you die, no matter what you try to do to resolve it? But are there any circumstances in which divorce and remarriage is permissible? Jesus' answer is clearly yes. Yes. Hardheartedness was no less of a problem in his day than it was in Moses' day or ours. And so with Moses, Jesus validates the view that sexual immorality is a sufficiently serious breach of the marriage covenant to justify divorce when every other option has been tried. Working outside the confines of this narrow discussion about Deuteronomy, Paul also includes cases of de- desertion uh, in that bracket later on in 1 Corinthians 7. Although actually, in most practical situations, desertion and sexual immorality tend to march together. But the overriding message here is one of caution, isn't it? I reiterate, God knows that divorce is something we should do everything in our power to avoid. To us, divorce seems like a way to bring relational problems to an end. But God knows divorce is a way to solidify and institutionalize relational problems. So how do you think all this went down? Matthew doesn't tell us how the Pharisees responded, uh, but perhaps we can guess at their response by watching the response of the disciples. The disciples lived in a world in which the opinions of Hillel and Shammai set the boundaries of normality. Shammai was at the conservative end of the spectrum and Hillel was at the liberal end. But neither of those got even close to the incredibly uh, challenging position on the sanctity uh, of marriage and the toxicity of divorce that Jesus has just laid out here. And so the disciples said to Jesus, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to get married Now, of course, I guess they were making their point in an over-the-top-ish kind of way. I don't think that they really believe that people shouldn't get married. But the striking thing about this part of the text is that Jesus takes them quite seriously. Marriage, in Jesus' mind, is such a grave matter that he believes we should give very serious consideration to remaining single. Now, I must admit, I find this a hard teaching. Uh, In my heart of hearts, I know that God has been very kind to me, placing me in a marriage relationship. The way that God made me, I think I'm a lot more useful for the gospel uh, in partnership with Ruth than I ever was before I met her. Uh, So I relate very much to the statement that God makes to Adam in the garden. It's not good for a man to be alone. But the point of our text is that we're not in the garden anymore. Now we're so very vulnerable to hard-heartedness, but there are circumstances where it can be good for a man to be alone. And there are circumstances where there's a need for a provision for divorce. Paul makes exactly that same point again when he's dealing with these issues in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul wants us to know that marriage and singleness are both good callings for a Christian, but there are certain advantages to singleness, uh, advantages that he himself experienced as a single man. A single person is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he or she can please the Lord, writes Paul. But a married person is uh, concerned about the affairs of this world, how he or she can please their partner. Now, neither Paul nor Jesus uh, makes this point at the expense of negativity about marriage. If you know your New Testament, you'll know that well. And that's important because actually in 1 Timothy, uh, we find out that negativity about marriage is one of the defining marks of an anti-Christian worldview. But both Jesus and Paul do highlight the legitimacy and even the preferability of being single for the cause of the gospel. And we need to get to grips with that. In our church, we need to uh, maybe do a better job of honoring single people. Churches should not be places where unmarried people in their mid-30s are treated with de facto sympathy. When God calls someone to singleness for a time or for a lifetime and they grasp hold of it as an opportunity to really move the needle for the gospel, that's something we should admire. And it's something, it's something in which we should be able to see God's Holy Spirit at work. In our church, then, we need to make a real effort to include single people. Sometimes being single in a church full of married and dating people is not much fun. I remember what that feels like very much. As married and as single people, we need to ask for God's help to show mutual sensitivity to each other's needs. As married people, we need to think life through from the single person's perspective. It's not just about having single people uh, around to dinner occasionally. Our single brothers and sisters need to feel that they belong somewhere and that they have people who are there for them. So we need to try and find ways to offer that kind of consistency. And single people, I guess, need to accept the fact that belonging to a real church is going to put them uh, in close relationship with couples and tiny kids and all the other chaos that they either desperately want or desperately don't want. Um <laughs> And whatever emotions that sets running in you, if you're single, you need to have the grace to try and park that stuff and uh, just muck in. We also need to be very careful, don't we, as a church, about the transition from singleness to dating and from dating to marriage and treat it as seriously as Jesus does here. We need to shoot straight with each other if we're going to avoid unnecessary pain. If you're a single person and you're content to remain so, do please try not to let someone who isn't content to be single fall for you. And likewise, if you're a single person who really wants to be married, do please consider the possibility that the person on whom you've set your heart might want to remain single to maximize their usefulness for the kingdom. Above all, though, Jesus wants us to grasp the fact that these issues of singleness and marriage are very important but also very delicate. The kingdom of God does not operate according to the same norms uh, of the kingdom of the world. We can't just bring in the stuff that we see from uh, our work world and our college world and magazine culture around us and hope that it will work in church. We need to honour what Jesus says in the way that we think about uh, marriage and singleness. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our first section, the longest of the three. We're going to move on more swiftly now through these next two little incidents Uh, that are recorded in this chapter. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, uh, we find out what happened immediately after this exchange with the Pharisees. Uh, I'll read it to you. Follow along with me. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he placed his hands on them, He went on from there. In the first section of the text, we found that Jesus's vision for life in the kingdom was more tightly constrained, didn't we, than people around him thought it would be. The Pharisees and the disciples all thought that Hillel and Shammai marked the poles of what uh, people should think about marriage and divorce. But Jesus had a very different perspective, focused more on keeping marriages together Uh, than on the conditions in which they could be taken apart. But now in this second section of the text, Jesus surprises his disciples again, but in the completely the opposite direction. Now they find that life in the kingdom is far less tightly constrained than they thought that it would be. In verse 13, we read that some people brought little children to Jesus to have him place his hands on them and pray for them. Now this clearly wasn't the dumb thing uh, in the minds of the disciples, was it? Important rabbis like Jesus uh, didn't demean themselves by talking to children because children had no social standing in Jewish society. It's telling, actually, um, if you know a bit of Hebrew, that the Hebrew word that's used to describe children, katon, means little, young, insignificant. But just as we saw in the first part of our passage, Jesus isn't willing to be constrained here by what the world around him thinks, is he? And so he rebukes the people who do have social status, the disciples, in defense of the little children who don't. And once again, I think there are some lessons here for our church. As a church and as parents, I think we often do a bad job of letting the kingdom of God really be for children. Our problem is not that we do nothing. Uh, We have a great children's program that our kids uh, really enjoy We have some really gifted Sunday school leaders who have a heart to teach our children the Bible story and all that stuff is great. But outside Sunday school, what have we got? Outside Sunday school, I think actually most of us do a pretty bad job of making the kingdom accessible to kids because we tend to approach it in terms that only make sense to adults. Now, I'm definitely a work in progress uh, in this area myself as a, a parent of little kids. Uh, and I realized this, preparing that message that I did last weekend, the, the, the Matthew thing with all the pictures um, for last Sunday. The way I wrote that initially, um, looking at uh, Jesus calling Matthew from his tax collector's booth, the application that I had, the point I wanted to bring it to for the kids, was to say, so what you want to do is follow Jesus. But then when I ran that through with Ruth, who's much wiser than me, and we homeschool our kids, so she has lots of experience here, she challenged me on that and just said, um she asked me, look, what do you think those words follow me really mean to a six year old? The answer is not much. Our kids are just really confused by that because Jesus isn't physically here, so there's no one physically to follow. So what do you mean? It's an abstract idea. It's out of their range unless we're prepared to do the work required to actually help them get what it means. And so in the end, I rewrote that whole part of the the message, which you might uh, remember following uh, Jesus didn't end up being the punchline. I tried to show them that following Jesus was really doing exactly what Matthew did. uh, That it was about um, saying sorry for the wrong things that he'd done, trusting that Jesus had died to pay for them, um, and then uh, moving on into a life where Jesus is my leader. Those things are a little bit more accessible, I think. And if we're not prepared to make that kind of effort when we've got the Bible in our hands, I think we're really doing just what the disciples were doing here in the story, denying our kids the chance to really hear it. Much of what passes for normal Christianity among us, I think is inaccessible and incomprehensible to kids. Either we ask them to sing words that they don't really understand or engage with God in ways that they can't relate to, Or we dumb the whole thing down so far and adapt it so radically to the norms of our kind of Disney culture uh, that it hardly bears any relation to who Jesus really was or what he really said and did. And that's a shame, isn't it? That's not what Jesus did here in Matthew's Gospel. So if we're parents, although this is the smallest section of the text, I'd like this to be one of the biggest takeaways for us, uh, if possible. It's our job to teach our children about Jesus in terms that make sense to them introducing them to the great truths of the gospel doesn't have to be like introducing them to the romantic poets you know we have to pummel them with uh, relentless emotionally loaded abstract truths until their eyes glaze over uh, but it doesn't have to mean sitting them down in front of veggie tales at the opposite extreme either god has revealed the good news to us in the stories of the bible And he wants us to read them to our kids and share them because they're our stories too. Yes, it demands something from us to be able to teach this stuff as signposts to Jesus and not just as a kind of collection of uh, moral fairy tales. But if we want to follow Jesus' example here and give our kids a seat at the table, we need to get to grips with this. Now we've uh, handily today, we've actually got something that you can do to help you do that. Uh, We're at the stage in our gospel project um, with in Sunday school where the next set of cards have come out. Now this is a great bridge from the good things that are happening out there into our homes. Cards here that help us turn the Old Testament stories that they're reading into meaningful, accessible conversations that we can have around the dinner table, things that we can stick up you know, around a bedroom that will help us uh, just keep these conversations in front of our minds. So do collect these. If you have kids in Sunday school uh, today, collect them from the classrooms when you pick your kids up and use them at home to try and put this kind of uh, principle into practice. Okay, so now we're going to reach the final section here of our uh, chapter, the final misunderstanding that Jesus deals with. Um, Immediately after this incident with the little children, Matthew tells us that he was approached by a man who asked him this question, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Most of us probably know the way that this story played out. Jesus told him to keep the commandments, and he listed out the second table of the law, honour your father and mother, do not murder, don't commit adultery, so on and so forth. The man replies, all these I have kept what do I still lack? So then Jesus says to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Now I imagine that most of us find this an uncomfortable text. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm assuming we do. What do we do with this fact that Jesus challenges us to sell everything that, or challenges this man to sell everything that he has. Because none of us have sold everything that we have, have we? So I imagine if you're anything like me, you've kind of found a private way to rationalize this one. Perhaps you've persuaded yourself that you have effectively sold everything you have, because everything you have is really needed for the ministry opportunities that God's put in front of you, including your nice house and your SUV and your MacBook Pro and all the other things that I have. Or perhaps you persuaded yourself that this man had a particular issue with riches that Jesus puts his finger on here. Uh, And because you don't have that kind of issue, uh, you don't need to worry too much about Jesus's advice. I've heard a lot of that one. Some combination of those two arguments, I guess, in the back of my mind has satisfied me in the past. But the problem with preaching like this is that when you're actually called to put things into words, you realize how ridiculous they sound. Neither of those two things sounds particularly convincing, does it? My parents-in-law have been staying with us over Christmas. They've been serving on the mission field in Africa and Madagascar for nearly 40 years. And I'm telling you, their lives show me very clearly that I have not sold everything, however much I want to persuade myself I have. And if I think I don't have a problem with wealth, well, all I need to do is look at the post-it note that's stuck to my computer screen down at the church office. It says, the idea that if you buy just one more thing, you will have everything you need is a lie. And I'm telling you, I need to be reminded of that every day. So what is really going on in this text? Well, as I've studied it and prayed about it, I think that actually, uh, I'm just realizing that because I've never been prepared to actually really look it in the eye before, I've never truly understood what it means. You see, I think our attempts to rationalize this text end up just buying into the assumptions of the young man in the story. The young man believes that there really is something that he can do to inherit eternal life, doesn't he? But buying into that assumption doesn't make any sense in the context of this chapter, does it? This whole chapter is about Jesus blowing up false assumptions about his kingdom. And I think Jesus is doing exactly the same thing here. When the young man comes to Jesus in verse 16, he asks, What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him the textbook answer keep the commandments. If Adam and Eve had kept the commandments in the Garden of Eden, would they have inherited eternal life? Yes. And the same thing is true of us. In Romans chapter 2, Paul tells us that God will give eternal life to anyone who, by persistence in doing good, seeks glory, honor, and immortality. A life of obedience to God's commandments really is a legitimate route to heaven. The problem is just that only one human being in history has ever walked that path Jesus himself. As Paul progresses with his argument in Romans, he shows us that though the door to eternal life is open in principle to anyone who can keep the commandments, in practice, no one can. Because the standard set before us in the commandments is perfection. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what the commandments say. So do you see what Jesus is aiming at here in his initial response to this guy? He wants him to see his need. He wants him to see how vain it is to hope in anything that we can do to get eternal life. But that's not the response that he gets, is it? You see, this young man had grown up under the teaching of the Pharisees who had made a religion out of the idea that it was possible to keep God's commandments completely. In fact, they were so confident that they could keep all the commandments that God had written that they wrote a whole bunch more themselves. So when the young man heard Jesus' advice that was designed to help him grasp how unable he was to approach God in his own strength, he came straight back to Jesus telling him that he had all the commandments covered since he was a boy. And it's in that context that Jesus now makes the remark that we find so challenging. We've got to read it in that context. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. What's Jesus' intention here? Is Jesus holding this out as a practical possibility, do you think? I don't think so. I don't think this second suggestion to the young man is any more realistic than the first. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, because he knows that this young man can't be perfect. He says, go and sell all your possessions because he knows this young man can't go and sell literally everything he has. There's only one human being in history who was ever given literally everything he had away and that's Jesus himself. And he did it because he knows that we can't So do you see that the punch and the true tragedy of this story lies in verse 22. Jesus' second response to the young man succeeded where the first one failed in that it broke his self-confidence. Because of the lies that he'd drunk him from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law all his life, this young man sincerely believed that he could keep the commandments. But when Jesus challenged him to sell his possessions, his need was exposed Jesus showed him that he couldn't do what it took to enter eternal life. But the tragedy was that realizing this, the young man went away sad. Realizing his need brought him within a hair's breadth of entering the kingdom. That sadness was the point that he needed to get to in order to jump across. But he chose not to. If only he'd been willing to live in that sadness a little bit longer. If only he'd been willing to turn to Jesus at this point and say, I realize now I can't do this on my own. Help me overcome my belief that I can. He would have entered God's presence that day and never left. But instead, he went away sad. He realized his need, but he let the realization become a launch pad for a new form of independence and self-reliance. The independence and self-reliance of despair. Some of us may be doing exactly the same thing this morning. So why is it hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus says in verse 23? Well, it depends on what kind of rich people we are. There certainly are rich people who don't enter the kingdom of heaven simply because they have no interest in the kingdom of heaven. They're interested in the kingdom of man and as living as kings and queens in that kingdom. But even when rich people are interested in the kingdom of heaven, even when they know intuitively that there must be more to life than reaching the top and dominating other people, they still find it hard to enter because they're convinced they can do it on their own. That's where the rich young man in our story was. And that's the truth I think Jesus really wants to see us apply from this text. I don't think he lays down this challenge to the young man to sell all his possessions because he believes that he can actually go through with it. No, his goal for the young man and for us is that we would fall at his feet and admit our inability to save ourselves. And that explains the response that he gives to the disciples in the final part of the chapter. You see, the disciples totally don't get it. Their initial response is to look at Jesus and say, who then can be saved? Jesus replies with, the words, with words to the effect of saying, look, that's exactly my point. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you see the gospel in those words now? God and not man is where our hope for entering eternal life really lies. But the disciples won't let up in their conviction that there's something that we can do and that what we give up or sacrifice in this life is what really gets God's attention in the end. Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And so gently, Jesus has to review the same ground with them again. It's true, by God's grace, those of us who are forgiven in this life do have wonderful blessings to look forward to in the next life. But many who are first will be last, says Jesus, and many who are last will be first You see, what we're prepared to give up physically in this life won't be the true measure of our hearts in the end. What we're prepared to acknowledge ourselves to be spiritually in this life will be the true measure of our hearts in the end. Some who don't seem to have given up much and yet who have served God without placing any hope in their ability to impress him will be ahead of others who have given up much but who have secretly clung on to the thought that by giving those things up, They were earning God's favor. Because the kingdom of God is not what we think it is. That's the message of this whole chapter, isn't it? In some ways, it's far more tightly constrained than we think it will be. In other ways, it's far less tightly constrained than we think it will be. And the way to enter it is not what we think it will be either. God's solution to the pain and difficulties that we experience in our marriages, God's solution to the kind of elitism that sets faith at a distance from kids. And God's solution to the illusion of our self-sufficiency is for us to recognize our need and come to him conscious that only he can do what's needed for us to attain eternal life or to live the way that we're intended to in this life. The kingdom is open only to those who are utterly convinced that they are completely dependent on God. Let's pray. Jesus, as we read this text, um, I feel like the people who met you, that you come from such a, an unexpected direction at us, and you're blowing away what seems natural and normal to us. And yet, when we watch you, we see you in action, Lord, my heart says, I, I want what you have, whatever it is that you are doing, however it is that you're doing it, I see that it's so much better, so much closer to God's intention for my life than what I choose, even in this last week. And so, Jesus, we, we want to come before you, maybe coming before you sad, but not walking away sad. We want to come before you and say, Jesus, I see it. I see that I'm not what I should be, that my vision of my marriage and my relationships, that my parenting, um, that my self-sufficiency is all the wrong way around. But you have the words of eternal life. Help me overcome the belief that I can do this stuff right on my own. Help me be a man who's dependent on your words willing to listen and learn and put into practice what I hear. We pray for your glory and trusting in your power. Amen.